Judging by store shelves, there are a lot of people sitting on a lot of pasta right now. So this week, we're looking at one of the greatest of all pasta dishes, one that can be made in several different ways. This week, we're talking about macaroni. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. to tell for certain, but it's very possible that the word macaroni for pasta is older than the word pasta for pasta. Certainly in English, the word referred to all the shapes of Italian-derived noodles long before it came to mean the specific curved tubular shape to which it refers today. It makes an appearance in Yankee Doodle Dandy, of course, as 18th century slang that is basically what hipster means today. There are references to it as far back as the 1300s. Shaped pasta like macaroni was once, before the advent of pasta extruders, quite time-consuming and expensive to make. And it wasn't until the early 20th century that reliable drying methods began to encourage the explosion of pasta styles we know today. Outside of the common flat shapes and their easy-to-make derivatives, the more complex spirals and tubes were mainly inventions of Neapolitan pasta factories, not generations of nanas carefully matching shape to sauce. It's not clear who first matched cheese to macaroni, but it was already appearing in English cookbooks in the mid-1700s, and Thomas Jefferson was serving it later that century. 1937, though, is the year macaroni became iconic. James Kraft introduced Kraft Dinner to the U.S. and Canada simultaneously, and North American cooking was transformed. In the depths of the Depression, it was cheap and it was filling, and once World War II ramped up and women went to work, the speed and simplicity of making it became even more appealing. It's one of the first dishes many kids learn to cook. For some people, it's practically the only dish they know how to cook. It's also one of the few foods of its kind that never disappoints. There's all kinds of things I loved as a kid that lost their appeal as I got older. If I go the rest of my life without eating another Hot Pocket, I'm okay with that. Easy cheese, which I thought was basically the greatest thing ever as a 10-year-old, is not something I crave now. But there's always a couple of boxes of mac and cheese. It hasn't been craft dinner in the U.S. since the 50s. Hanging out in my pantry. Like Lando Calrissian said, it works every time. topic of this uh this week's show is uh macaroni so i'm imagining that you sort of um automatically added in cheese to the end of it because i certainly intended you to so i'm here in the kitchen and we are going to make macaroni and cheese that is my pot full of macaroni for the first recipe 
because we are going to make macaroni and cheese three different ways. One way is sort of the classic, probably the oldest mac and cheese recipe, the eternal baked macaroni and cheese, although you can make a you can make this style on the stovetop too, but typically this one gets made specifically to be baked. And then we're also going to make a stovetop mac and cheese the sort of traditional way. And then we're going to get freaky and make a newfangled modern mac and cheese using ingredients that are very simple but really sound scary. So we'll get to that later. We're going to start out with the classic way though. And uh, the classic mac and cheese is of course made with a bechamel, which is a very simple sauce made of butter, flour, and milk. Technically, we are making a Mornay sauce, which is the word for a bechamel that is made with added cheese. Although, if you really want to get technical about it, we're not making a Mornay because we're not going to make, we're not going to use Gruyere. Officially, a Mornay contains Gruyere, but nobody actually says it like that anymore. So, let's just say we're going to make a bechamel today and we're going to add cheese to it. And you can call it a Mornay if you want to. As long as people understand what you're making, which is cheese sauce, <laughs> which is what we're going to be doing today. So the difference between the three different styles of mac and cheese that we are going to be making today is this first one is the, as I said, it's the oldest and it's made with a bechamel, which is a sauce made with a roux. Um, the second stovetop mac and cheese that is the more traditional stovetop mac and cheese is going to be made with a custard sauce. It's going to be an egg and milk based sauce with the cheese added. And the third that we'll be making later is going to be made with an emulsifying salt and the one that we're going to be using is called sodium citrate. And these are three different methods of doing the same thing. The problem with cheese is that even really good melting cheeses have a tendency to break once they get to a sauce consistency. The protein in the cheese begins to stick together and it expels both the water and the milk fat. And that's why you get greasy, clumpy, nasty cheese. You've seen this over and over and over again, I'm sure. If you overcook pretty much any kind of a cheese, and we're not talking about the processed cheeses because those, like Velveeta's and Americans and that kind of thing, those are gonna be much more like the sodium citrate because in fact, sodium citrate is used in making those. So we'll talk about that a little later. But essentially the problem is that the proteins in the cheese tend to want to stick together and they squeeze out over time, either over time in the case of an aged cheese or under heat, in the case of a melting cheese, they squeeze out the moisture and they squeeze out the milk fat, so the cheese breaks. A cheese is an emulsion in solid or semi-solid form. What we're attempting to do every time we make a cheese sauce is to counteract this particular problem. And these three different ways of uh, making cheese sauces counteract it in different ways. And they each have their pluses and their minuses. So we're gonna start with the bechamel. The way that a bechamel basically works in making uh, a cheese sauce like this is it's got two different components. One is the proteins in the milk itself that is a component of the bechamel, and the other is the starches in the flour that are in the roux. What happens is the starches swell up with, the, with moisture, and that helps to push the uh, proteins themselves in the cheese apart. And then there are also particular proteins within the milk that keep them from clumping directly together as well. They're the same proteins that are active when the cheese is actually being formed. So essentially you're like, 
you're like rebooting the cheese kind of. So the, the bechamel works in two separate ways that way. One is the starch pushing the proteins apart. The other is the, uh, the particular cheese proteins discouraging the cheese proteins from clumping together. All of these three things are attempting to maintain the emulsion of the cheese. Uh, they're just taking different strategies. The way that the custard sauce works is it's still got the milk involved, so it still has those milk proteins that assist in uh, keeping the, the cheese proteins structured. And it has eggs, and eggs are an excellent emulsifier on their own. Obviously, you know, as we know from making hollandaise and mayonnaise and the various egg sauces, eggs are very good at emulsification as well. So they help to maintain the emulsion of the milk fat and of the, the, uh, the water as the cheese melts. The big trouble with, with a, a custard sauce, a custard cheese sauce, is that if you, they're, they're a lot more delicate. So if you tried to bake it for a long time, it would break. Or if you overheat it on the stove, it will break. So there's a little more risk involved there. And finally, the sodium citrate solution is basically to add a particular a sodium citrate. It's a sour kind of a salt that the additional acid helps the cheese to maintain its emulsion as well. Um, and we'll get to that a little more once we get to the sodium citrate part. But we're gonna start out with the bechamel. Bechamels are easy. They are one of the, they are one of the mother sauces as they are called in French cooking. And everyone should really know how to make a bechamel. So I'm gonna go with about six tablespoons of butter. And I've got a pot of water boiling with my macaroni. This is the macaroni for the baked. So six tablespoons of butter. I'm going to need the equivalent of flour. This is a quarter cup, so I'll need a one quarter plus one half. So it's right about a third, not quite a third. Make a lot of roux on this show, but most of the roux that we make are, are the darker Cajun style. This is just a classical French butter roux. Very simple. There's really not much of a trick to it, except don't cook it too hot. Once the butter melts, I'll add the flour and then cook the flour for not very long. Again, the longer you cook flour, the more flavor it gets from the browned and toasty notes, but the less thickening power it has. And we are looking for some pretty significant thickening power here. We want the starch to do its work. So you might wonder, you know, why since the bechamel is fairly simple and fairly easy to make, why is it, why not just make all of your cheese sauces, you know, with a bechamel? Well, part of the difficulty is the starch in the bechamel has a tendency to sort of dog down the flavor a little bit for similar reasons that a lot of high-end restaurant cooking sauces don't use the traditional roux-based sauces anymore. It's basically the same principle here. It's that the sauces themselves can be a little heavy and a little bit stodgy. The starches in them tend to damp down the flavor, so you're not gonna get as intense a cheese flavor, in part because the cheese itself is so diluted in one of these sauces. Um, you know, it's not, it's not like the, the, the sauce is all cheese. There is a lot of milk and there's a lot of butter and there's a lot of flour in this sauce. And none of those things are incredibly flavorful on their own. Um, some people will add heavy cream saying that, oh, well, you know, it helps the flavor. But personally, I don't find that heavy cream helps the flavor very much. I think it does help the texture. It gives it a richer mouthfeel. But 
have you ever drank cream on its own? It's not like it's <laughs> it's not particularly delicious. Um, it really doesn't have much flavor of its own. It's there to contribute a sort of luxurious quality to the mouthfeel, a silkiness. So the texture is not going to be as good. The flavor is not going to be as intense. And um, you're still really limited. And this is something that goes with the custard style too. You're still pretty limited in the kinds of cheese that you can use because you have to use a good melting cheese. A harder cheese, a cheese that won't melt on its own, isn't going to melt into a bechamel sauce any better or a custard sauce. Um, so like a goat cheese or a feta or say a Parmesan, um, those are still going to remain sort of clumpy and whole for various reasons. So the, the, the only cheese, the cheeses that you have to limit yourself to in the bechamel and in the custard are cheeses that already melt very well to begin with. Um, you know, your cheddars, your gruyeres, mozzarellas, that sort of thing. The big advantage with the sodium citrate version uh, is that you can melt any sort of cheese into it. Um, and it does not, it doesn't have to be a good melting cheese. You can use blue, you can use goat cheese, you can use manchego, you can use things that don't typically melt very well and they will emulsify beautifully into the sauce. That's one disadvantage of the bechamel. Another disadvantage, particularly I find in stovetop mac and cheese, is that it doesn't have, bechamel just never is going to have a very, very silky smooth texture. And that is the sort of the hallmark of the custard style stovetop mac and cheese is that the texture is just gorgeous. You know, it's, it's very smooth, it's very silky. It, it sort of enrobes the macaroni in a really, really beautiful way. But the bechamel does have the huge advantage of being easily bakeable. Like I said, you can't really bake the custard style because it'll break. You can bake the more modern style with the sodium citrate, but again, it doesn't, but it doesn't have quite the same texture. Um, we'll get to the texture of sodium citrate in a little bit because some people find it a little weird, <laughs> but we'll talk about that later. Okay, so I've just added my little milk to the roux. This is pretty close to a, to a cup of roux total, a little less. This is, about the, this is about the correct amount to use for a quart of milk. So I'm stirring it in, stirring in the milk, cold milk, always add cold liquid to hot roux, hot liquid to cold roux, and it's very thick. Your roux consistency is something that you're just going to have to decide how you want it. You can make it really thick, you can make it really thin, but typically about a cup of roux to about a quart of liquid is a, is a good solid amount. I always hate tasting macaroni because there's always a little bit of like the super hot boiling liquid in the middle. I'm going to scoop out just a little bit of the starchy water because I am going to dump this. I'm going to drain this macaroni and cheese. I don't want it to overcook, but I'm going to scoop out some ladles of the starchy water. Remember that the whole business about cooking, uh, cooking macaroni or cooking any pasta in enormous quantities of water is complete nonsense and there's no reason to do it. In fact, it's better at home to use smaller amounts of water because then you get lots of extra starch in the pasta which assists in the sauce marrying with the pasta which is after all one of the great joys of eating pasta so i've taken out a little bit of uh, the starchy water just to add in right at the end once i blend the once i add the the sauce to the macaroni so that we get a uh, just a little more starch help in gluing the, the sauce to the macaroni. So now I've got a very, very thick sauce. 
adding a little more milk. Remember, it's uh, it's a lot easier to thin out a sauce than it is to, to thicken it. Thickening sauces is really, really difficult um, at the end. There are ways to do it, but in general, it's much better if you sneak up on the thinness of the sauce. So roux-based sauces will always start out a little bit thinner than they're going to wind up being after they cook a little bit. Part of the reason that traditionally sauces are, are cooked for a long time is to, is to allow the starch granules to fully absorb all of the liquid that they can so that you'll have a more accurate sense of what the final texture of the sauce is going to be. So now it is very definitely starting to look about the proper consistency. So that is my oven going on. Grabbing a baking pan to bake my macaroni and cheese in. So one of the advantages, another one of the advantages of bechamel uh, mac and cheese is that it's better cold. It has a very similar texture when it's cold, you know, the next day as it does when it, when it's hot, you know, it's not as gooey, but it also, it has a nice mouthfeel. Um, custard mac and cheese, custard mac and cheese is a little firmer. Um, not quite as, not quite as nice. And uh, <laughs> the modern mac and cheese can get positively sort of plasticky when it's cold. So this is, <laughs> for snacking straight out of the fridge the next day, this is definitely the choice. And that is a full quart of milk. I will save part of this bechamel and then I'll have a nice container full of basically gravy. <laughs> that I can use for anything. All right, so now I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let it, I'm gonna bring it to a simmer. I'm adding some salt, I'm adding a little pepper, and I'm adding what is frankly a classic flavoring in bechamel. That is my jar of nutmeg. Ah, <laughs> I just, Dropped my entire nutmeg into my bechamel, so now I have to figure fish it out. Where did it go? There, nope, that's not it. <laughs> there it is. You know, that's a little too much nutmeg. That is the first time that I've ever dropped nutmeg in anything I was grating it into. So I probably just took out about two cups of bechamel. Now I have this beautiful thick sauce. It's just beginning to simmer. Remember to stir it quite a bit because uh, bechamel does tend to stick on the bottom of the pot. And now I've got a giant mass of shredded cheddar cheese. This is sharp cheddar. It's real basic, simple Tillamook cheddar. And remember, for things like this, when you want your cheese to melt properly, don't use pre-shredded cheese. It comes coated in cornstarch, and that means that it's not gonna thoroughly melt properly. It's okay for something like nachos, you know, where you're not looking for a full-on melted cheese sauce, but it won't melt correctly into a sauce like this. So you need to, you pretty much gotta pre-grate it yourself. It's a lot of cheese. Probably a good solid three cups of shredded cheese. And you want to make sure that the sauce is smooth before you add it to the macaroni. You don't want any clumps to happen. You want the whole sauce to be fully made and fully incorporated. If you have chunks, then you will have little pockets of chunky cheese in your macaroni. 
And you may want that, you know. You might want to, like, drop some chunks of blue cheese into your macaroni. You just expect that they're going to be individual pockets of cheese and not they're not going to melt and incorporate into the sauce. Add a little shot of Louisiana hot sauce. Hot sauce is always nice to add to a cheese sauce because it definitely, like, it's never going to really make it that hot because there's so much dairy to coat your palate. But what it does is it'll just give it a little piquancy so that it'll sort of perk things up a little bit. Mustard serves the same purpose. Um, and mustard is frequently an addition to these sauces as well. I only have whole grain mustard right now, so I'm not going to add any to e any of these sauces, but it is very much a welcome addition. Hot sauce and Worcestershire sauce, which I'm also about to add, are two of the classic accompaniments to uh, Welsh rarebit, which is a very similar uh, idea to mac and cheese, really. Cheese sauce on toast. It is beautifully silky now. Let's give it a taste. I might add a little more cheese, I might not. Let's see. That is lovely, for sure. A little cheesy. I'm gonna add just a sprinkle more. Give another quarter cup. Just a little more. The other advantage of bechamel as a sauce when it goes in the oven is that bechamel will brown. Um, so even if you didn't, even if you elected not to put breadcrumbs or potato chips or whatever on the top, any, if, even if you didn't put anything crunchy on top, the bechamel itself would still brown, which is not something that other non-starch-based sauces will do, which is incidentally one of the reasons why bechamel is classic in lasagna, because you put it on top and it browns beautifully. Okay, there's that. Just gonna go ahead and dump in my macaroni. Ooh, lots of it. Pan is like just barely really too small for the amount of macaroni and cheese that I just dumped into this. Um, <laughs> it works. It works. It does work. I'm gonna just leave the heat on. I want to, and like I say, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with stopping right now and eating it. But this particular style of macaroni and cheese typically is baked in the oven. So I'm gonna add just a little bit of this pasta water. That, was, that wasn't very much. You don't need very much. Um, just, that's like, maybe, it's not even a cup. And that just gives a little extra pasta starch just to smooth things out a little bit more. And since we're going into the oven, um, I'm gonna go ahead and make, I like that it's maybe slightly thinner. So now I've got a pan full of macaroni and cheese. And that is a good solid bechamel. Again though, it's not overly cheesy. So I am going to top this particular mac and cheese because it is traditional to put something crunchy on top. Got some potato chips here. Just putting them in my mortar and pestle. I've never actually crunched up potato chips in my mortar and pestle, but it's working very well, I must say. A lot better than the old put them in a plastic bag and beat on them with a mallet technique, which I never liked because it seemed like such a waste of a plastic bag. Nice amount of those. Sprinkle them on top. And now we've got mac and cheese. Mac and cheese, the classic baked bechamel version. Okay, that one's in the oven. Actually, I didn't know until I started doing this, reading up on mac and cheese, it's a really old dish. 
The bechamel version of mac and cheese has examples from the early 1700s in, uh, in England that are exactly the same way that we make it today. Just a bechamel with, uh, with some cheese added, poured over macaroni, thrown in the oven. Macaroni number two. This one is going to be a one pot stovetop mac and cheese. And we're gonna make it right in the same pot that we're cooking the macaroni in. So this is obviously sort of the, uh, the sort of forefather to craft mac and cheese, at least in terms of how it's made, how easy it's made. Except that Kraft mac and cheese, of course, is not a custard. In fact, Kraft mac and cheese in its actual mechanism of working much, much closer to the next one that we're about to, that will that we'll do the sodium citrate mac and cheese. But this is, uh, it seems to be the most popular, at least I always associate it with the South. Um, this seems to be like sort of the most common one. And if you look up Southern style mac and cheese, this is what you get. I don't actually know the whole history of when this particular style of mac and cheese began, but it is definitely associated with the American South. It's pretty simple. It's just got a few ingredients. Um, I am using eggs, evaporated milk, a little butter, and then some seasonings, and then cheese. And the way this one works is you use the evaporated milk in part because there's less water involved. So you know, the evaporated milk is much more concentrated and water in an emulsion like this is the biggest thing that you're trying to control. So the eggs serve as the emulsifier and the milk proteins in the evaporated milk help to, like we said before, help to keep the, the proteins in the cheese from clumping together. And then since we don't have a bunch of leftover water, we don't run as much of a risk of breaking this rather sensitive emulsion. This is probably the most difficult uh, of the three to make just because you're making an egg emulsion, you're making a custard sauce. Now it's a custard sauce that has a lot of starches involved. So the starches from the pasta, if you retain some of that pasta water, they, that will help to maintain the emulsion. There are things that are helping you out here. This is actually very close to making, to uh, it's very similar in a lot of ways to a carbonara, you know, the bacon and egg and cheese pasta. And so once we get to the end point, the trick is going to be heat, keeping everything just heated enough and not heated too much. So that's our, that's our mission here. And again, I'm cooking in a relatively small amount of water. It's kind of just covering the, the pasta. There is a, <laughs> there's a, a pretty well-known recipe from Kenji Lopez-Alt, uh, who is one of the great recipe writers these days, uh, where he makes a, it's, it's a three ingredient pasta, uh, stovetop mac and cheese that is exactly like this, except there's no butter and there's no eggs. It's just evaporated milk and cheese. And he does it by cooking the pasta water until it has absorbed all of the water. All the water is either absorbed or cooked away. And then, uh, so you get what little bit of water is left is super, super starchy and, and enormously, uh, uh, absorptive. So that then you add the, the milk and the, the cheese and you basically immediately get a sauce. I have made it, it's really quite delicious. But this, this one, this particular style of mac and cheese, this is about the luxuriousness of the sauce. There's nothing like eggs to give sauce. 
that silky, you know, really, really gorgeous uh, mouthfeel. So I got two eggs, I got a can of evaporated milk. That might actually be a little much. I don't think I'm gonna use all of that. There's my can opener. The only kind worth buying, the swing away. I don't know why people even try to use other kinds of can openers, because they're trash. This is evaporated milk, not condensed milk. We're not making dessert mac and cheese. And in case I haven't mentioned, I'm baking my baked mac and cheese at 400, and I'm just gonna go till it, you know, bubbles up a little bit and starts to get nice and brown on the on the top. The potato chips get nice and crispy and brown. Well, they're already crispy, but start to brown up. Bake until bubbly. <laughs> the classic casserole instructions go because I mean, basically, this mac and cheese. The baked style is the simplest casserole that you can make. Like the good people make fun of casseroles. They're like, oh, it's cream and mushroom soup and whatever. But if you make a if you make a casserole with a nice bechamel, they can be really, really terrific. Casseroles get a lot of undeserved hate. I mean, it's not that there aren't really terrible ones out there. And yeah, it's pretty lazy to just, you know, dump a couple of cans of cream and mushroom soup in with some raw vegetables and, you know, call it good, but <laughs> They're a worthy style of dish all on their own. Maybe when we do broccoli, we'll do the broccoli rice casserole, which is the greatest casserole ever. For my stovetop mac and cheese, how do I want to season it? I think what we will do also the Worcestershire. This one, I'm going to add a little paprika. And just for S's and G's, a little smoked paprika. Obviously, we're not even remotely delving into the amount of stuff that you can add to mac and cheese because it's literally everything. Like, what can't you put in mac and cheese and have it be good? It's mac and cheese, you know? Maybe like, I don't know, halibut would probably be gross, but <laughs> smoked salmon. I have had smoked salmon mac and cheese. It works very well. I know all the hipsters make lobster mac and cheese, which just seems pointless to me, but what do I know? I'm sure somebody here is doing scallop mac and cheese, crab mac and cheese. It's tough, such an iconic food, you know, that attracts like so much sort of gimmickiness when really it should mac and cheese. <laughs> I like cheeseburger mac. I like chili mac. I like chili mac if it's made with actual chili that you then mac, you know, real meat chili that you then mix with the mac and cheese. That is delicious. Hot peppers are never out of place in mac and cheese. So while we're waiting for this to boil, it's actually a good time now that I mentioned hot peppers um, to talk about in the next, the next go around, we're going to be making uh, the mac and cheese with the sodium citrate, which is also the, the great secret to queso. But the other sort of famous style of melty cheese sauce, um, it's worth mentioning just to know how that particular one works. The other great style of melted cheese sauce is of course fondue. And the way that fondue works is it's, it's cheese, typically uh, Gruyere or Emmentaler, both of which are reasonably good melting cheeses. And then they add white wine. And the point of the white wine is not necessarily the flavor, it's actually the acidity in the white wine. The specific uh, acids that are formed are in fact various, and there are, there are not only the acids, but there are also compounds, the acid salt. And they're very similar to sodium citrate, which is an acid, which is a, uh, an acid salt of citric acid. And so it's actually uh, fondue made in the traditional way is, is sort of a roundabout way of getting to the same sort of thing that we're about to get to in the next one. 
And in fact, there is some relevance to that in the history of processed cheese. All right, my macaroni is swelling up quite a bit. I bet we're getting fairly close to being done. Let's take a bite again. Draining the piece of macaroni. Okay, I'm gonna call that good. Drain it real quick. I don't wanna drain it super thoroughly because I still want some of this starch water to come along for the ride. Because again, that will help with this whole business of keeping this emulsification going. Now, the first thing I'm gonna do, is I'm gonna add some of the milk just to get it nice and milky and get things kind of warmed up. And I'm also gonna add, <laughs> and this, so far this feels very much like making Kraft mac and cheese. Um, I'm adding a couple tablespoons of butter to my macaroni. I wanna get that nice and melted as well. So now I've got some of the, about half of the evaporated milk and some of the butter added to the pasta. And I'll just let all that sort of heat up together a little bit and let the starches on the pasta start to absorb it. And this is so I don't have to heat as long or as hard now that I'm adding the most of the rest of the milk with the eggs. And I've got my heat on very low. Okay, out of that. Stir it. I'm gonna go ahead and turn the heat off for a minute while I add this cheese, which this is a, about a cup, cup and a half of cheese. Oh man. I'm gonna turn my heat back on very, very low. Stir a little more, stir a little more. Drop a little paprika, a little pinch of smoked paprika, and this is just to give it a little bit of a uh, little depth of flavor here. And you can, you can already, you can just see, feel as you stir it, like it has, the macaroni is much more like independent of each other than it is in the bechamel version. Like the bechamel version always sort of wants to, to become a unity. Whereas the stovetop, the custard style mac and cheese is always, it always feels more of like a sauce to me. Mmm. Just a bit of pepper. Mmm, beautiful. And you essentially want to bring it just barely to where it starts to simmer. And then turn the heat off. And that, oh man, look at that sauce. God, that's beautiful. One of the things about cooking eggs is that an egg by itself, an egg yolk by itself, will start to curdle at around the mid-150s or so, temperature-wise. The more stuff you add to it, if you add sugar or if you add milk, that keeps raising the temperature at which the egg yolk starts to curdle. And, uh, and, but it will still thicken during, during that whole time. So that's how custards basically work. I think this is gonna actually take just a little more cheese. So again, you just heat it just enough. So that's two eggs and slightly less than a can of, in fact, if I had an eight ounce can, which I wish that I did, of uh, condensed milk, that would, or not condensed, uh, evaporated milk, that would have been perfect. But you have what you have. But again, this, this style is much more distinctly saucy. You know, you're not gonna get what you, what you get with the, with the baked style where you sort of cut out a big wedge of it and it, stays together. This stuff is always 
much more distinctly a cheese sauce. It's got a lighter texture. This is really my favorite style. <laughs> it's so like, so flowing and so, it just melts across your palate. It's so good. Just don't overcook it. All right, now we're gonna get freaky. We're gonna get freaky in a few different ways because the, the third style of mac and cheese that we're gonna be dealing with today, we're basically gonna be learning how to make Velveeta. And as many of you no doubt probably know, simply melting Velveeta in a bunch of macaroni makes pretty tasty mac and cheese. Um, it's, a, it's a distinct texture, it melts very well. Velveeta's a little bland though. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna make a little, a little more exciting mac and cheese. Something, something that's not so bland. We're gonna use sodium citrate. The other fun thing that we're gonna do today is we're actually not even going to make the mac and cheese today. I'm actually gonna make it tomorrow. I'm just gonna make the cheese today. I'm basically gonna be making a block of Velveeta, except I'm gonna be making it with sharp, nice, high quality cheddar cheese and goat cheese, fresh goat cheese, which ordinarily, if you've ever tried to melt it, it doesn't really melt. <laughs> it just kind of turns into warm chunks, but it doesn't melt into a smooth cheese at all. Most goat cheeses, as well as a lot of, uh, a lot of goat cheeses, a lot of fresh cheeses are made with the acid method, which I believe we made ricotta on this show before. Instead of using rennet, which is the traditional way, which is the way that you make uh, most aged cheeses are made with rennet, you can simply cook, a, cook milk with acid and it'll form curds. One of the byproducts of that is that the cheese that's made that way doesn't melt very well. It dissolves particular calcium bonds within the proteins that are the things that sort of allow cheese to melt. Take a look at my baked mac and cheese. Ooh, oh, oh. Ooh it's so lovely. Almost ready. Now, the nice thing about the sodium citrate style is that you all of a sudden gain a little bit of flexibility because you are not stuck using milk as your liquid. As we've talked about a couple times, one of the characteristics of milk is a particular kind of protein that helps the other, the proteins that are already in the cheese stay together uh, in a smooth way that doesn't clump. If you try to use water, all of a sudden you're throwing all sorts of wrenches into your emulsion. So you can't necessarily use water. You can, like we said with fondue, you can use white wine because it contains uh, specific acids that help the cheese to maintain its melting shape. But again, it's pretty sensitive. If you ever made fondue, you know it's, it is fairly easy to screw up. Um, but sodium citrate, among its many fantastic qualities, is that it completely frees you from, needing, from relying on milk. You can use milk as your liquid uh, to make the sauce, but you don't have to. And that means that all of a sudden there are a bunch of different uh, flavor compounds that you can introduce that you otherwise couldn't without using starches. Um, like beer cheese soup typically will use cornstarch. And again, as we've talked, that's one of the things that helps everything work out correctly. So you can do things like when I make queso with this particular method, which I love to do, I will frequently use tequila as my liquid. Or, or, or part of my liquid, which is <laughs> pretty delicious in, in, uh, in queso, actually. But I can use any cheese that I want. I'm not stuck using processed cheese because those are usually made, it's not that there aren't, there are some that are pretty good, but a lot of them are made with, you know, cheap, not very good cheese. So if you wanna make 
super high quality cheese sauce with quality cheese, sodium citrate is your magical answer. And today I'm gonna to be making it with some beer. I have a very simple craft Pilsner, um, which I was pretty delicious. Uh, who is this from? It's from Midnight Sun up in Anchorage. Now, in general, you want to, you want your sodium citrate to be about two to 3% of the total weight of your sauce. In practice, I find that the, this particular sauce is something that you can definitely wing. You can sneak up on it. Sodium citrate's really, it's cheap. It's easy to order online. Don't let the fact that it's a weird chemical scare you away from it. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna start with about a one-to-one -one ratio of my beer to my cheese. And I've added, I started out with a couple of, probably about a tablespoon and a half or so of my sodium citrate. And I can add more later. This is kind of one of the nice things about this. In general, it's better to have a little, uh, it, it's better to be on the lower end because sodium citrate, if you use too much of it, it can definitely take on kind of a, a, a sour, almost metallic edge, uh, which isn't something you really want. So I've got a can of beer. I have an eight ounce log of goat cheese. My beer is currently heating up and I'm going to drop my goat cheese directly into my beer. You can make this sauce entirely with goat cheese if you want to. You can make it with blue cheese. You could probably make the whole thing with Parmigiano-Reggiano. I haven't tried it, but a, a whole Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese sauce might be interesting. Um, if you have a stick blender, that is by far the fastest way to do this. Um, you just let, as it, as it begins to melt a little bit, you just buzz it a few times and everything comes together. If you don't have a stick blender, you, it takes a little longer, but it will eventually it will eventually melt. And now I'm also adding a bunch of cheddar cheese because I have some. So the thing to watch out for in this is as the cheese begins to melt and as the temperature of the whole system grows, if at any point it starts to look a little grainy and it starts to look like the cheese is beginning to break, like the sauce is breaking, all you gotta do is add a little more sodium citrate. And then once you have hit the correct amount of sodium citrate, the sauce as you whisk it will magically come together. And uh, it is a very exciting thing when it happens. Because this is how you get the gooey stuff. You know, there's a reason little kids love Velveeta and it's because nothing else quite has that gooeyness. In fact, uh, it's my understanding that it was the scientific understanding of uh, why fondue works and the ways that that acidic salts um, stabilize cheeses as they melt was where one Mr. James Kraft initially got the idea for processed cheese. Now I have not done it because I've had I have sodium citrate laying around, so I've never felt the need to do it. But I have heard from people who will who do say that if you add reasonable chunks, sized chunks of American cheese or of uh, Velveeta or another cheese that already contains uh, some of these acidic salts in it, that they will do the work for you. Um, I don't know what quantities that takes, but people do say that it works. If you use, say, you know, half Velveeta and then half another cheese that doesn't melt, like goat cheese or something. I don't know the answer to that for certain, so I cannot say. In this particular case, 
I have just about nailed it <laughs> right at the beginning because almost all of my cheese is melted and I have a beautiful sauce. So the amount of liquid is the big determiner here in the final product. Um, you can make, if you use less liquid, um, you can make a block of essentially your own flavored Velveeta that you can then slice and add to your hamburgers. Because I think maybe, maybe somebody will disagree, but I don't care. Honestly, as far as texture goes, American cheese is the best cheese for a hamburger because nothing else melts onto the burger quite the same way. It typically just tastes okay, you know? It's never that great. But as far as the texture goes, it is like exactly what you want. If you make a sufficiently thick version of this, pour it into a mold and let it set up overnight, you will get a solid block of sliceable cheese that you can then melt onto your own hamburgers. And it is quite delicious. And that's going to give me what is to me one of the great advantages of this style, uh, which is you can basically have a block of pre-made cheese sauce ready to use anytime. Um, if you don't want to make a big batch of mac and cheese, it's pretty easy to make a, a reasonably sized batch of this and uh, cut off a chunk of it, make a single serving of whatever pasta you want to use and uh, put them both in a pot together and melt them down. This stuff will remelt beautifully. You basically get single serve mac and cheese anytime you want it. Okay, so now I'm starting to examine things a little more and putting it on the spoon, I can see that there's a little bit of graininess. Not much, but just a little bit. You can see that the sauce is not totally smooth yet. So what I'm gonna do, I'm going to add one more, probably two tablespoons or two teaspoons of uh, sodium citrate. And I'm gonna drop it right in. And it is almost instantaneous how the liquid starts to gain some glossiness. The really nice thing about the immersion blender with this is that it really speeds up the process. Sometimes it can take a while for the last little chunks of, uh, of cheese to, to fully melt into the sauce. Um, the, rather, the rather brutal action of the immersion blender really does a number on, on getting it fully incorporated. But if you give it enough time, if you give it enough time, it will thoroughly incorporate. Just add little shots of sodium citrate at a time. And you're walking your way up to the final texture. And there are, oh yeah, that's so much better. Oh, there we go. This is fairly, this is a little thin. For one thing, if I put this in a pot and then add my freshly boiled mac macaroni to it, the again, the starches on the outside of the macaroni will thicken everything up. But I'm also gonna put this into the refrigerator overnight and I'm gonna let it cool down. Right now this is, well for one thing it's very hot. <laughs> and as, as this particular kind of cheese cools down, it thickens up as it goes. If I wanted it at this point, you know, if I say I was making queso and I needed to get it out today and I didn't want to let it sit overnight and see what happened with it um, or didn't want to take the time to cool it down, you just add a little extra cheese. Because again, the whole, con the consistency of this sauce is entirely encapsulated in the ratio of water to, uh, to cheese. Add some flavorings. For this one, I love fish sauce. 
in this. Ooh, right now it's almost like a cheese soup. I, I did, I did definitely, I shouldn't have added the whole can of beer, but I got carried away. That's okay. But again, if I really thought it was an issue, I would just add some more cheese and a little more sodium citrate. Okay, I'm adding a little red pepper for this one. Mm, it's so smooth. It's just perfect. So that's just a little red pepper and a little fish sauce. Now I'm gonna taste it, make sure we're in the ballpark. Mm. Oh, ooh, mm, it's very, very sharp. Let it cool down a little bit and we will come back to that tomorrow because I already have enormous quantities of macaroni and cheese here and uh, I'm not gonna be able to eat them all. All right. My baked mac and cheese is now very brown and crispy and bubbly. So I'm gonna pull that. It is very lovely. My stovetop mac and cheese is still magnificent. Still a little warm. Oh. Mm. oh, it's at the perfect temperature where it's thickened up quite a bit. It's still nice and oozy. Ooh, yeah. Well, I have a lot of mac and cheese here, <laughs> so I have to figure out what to do with it. I'm gonna be eating a lot of mac and cheese over the next couple days. Or more than a couple days. I got several days of mac and cheese here. <laughs> And I'm gonna have even more tomorrow because we'll be back to finish the, uh, to finish with this sodium citrate mac and cheese. All right, let's finish our modern mac and cheese. I want to go ahead and finish my cheese here. As I kind of suspected, my cheese is still a little liquid. I would prefer that my sauce be a little bit thicker. So I'm gonna add some more cheese to it because again, one of the advantages of this particular style of mac and cheese is that unlike most sauces, this is really easy to thicken. You just add more cheese and add a little more sodium citrate. Because again, remember the sodium citrate, you want it to be two to 3% of the total weight of your cheese and your liquid. So I added a whole can of beer in here and now I'm regretting it. It was too much, but that's okay. I will just fix it. And I could add either the sharp cheddar or the goat cheese, but one other thing about this that I noticed, it's almost like a very thick yogurt right now. Um, one other thing that I noticed is that I'm getting a little bit of bitterness off of the hops in the beer. You know, if I just use like a regular, like generic American lager, there wouldn't have been very much hops at all. So I wouldn't get a little bit of that bitter aftertaste, but because I used, <laughs> I used a good beer that actually has more flavor, there was a little bit of a bitter aftertaste on the back end of that Pilsner, and that's coming through right at the tail end of this sauce. So I'm gonna see if I can neutralize that a little bit uh, by adding a little bit more goat cheese. I could do the cheddar, I could do the goat cheese, but in this case, I feel like the goat cheese might be a little more successful. And like I say, it's not that it's, it's, I could, I could use this as a sauce right now. I just want it to be just a little bit thicker. So I'm gonna go ahead, another half log, so another five ounces or so of goat cheese. 10 ounces of goat cheese plus another five. So about a pound of goat cheese and probably a half pound of uh, sharp cheddar. So that's like, I mean, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of cheese here and uh, a lot of, uh, and a lot of beer as well. So a whole can of beer. And again, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and wait for the, mo the bulk of the cheese to start to melt. It's really hard to tell the final texture until most of the cheese has melted into the sauce. 
And then when you pull it up on the spoon and look at it real close, you can see the little, the little granules of the cheese uh, that, that hasn't quite incorporated into the sauce. And that's how you know, oh, I need to add a little bit more sodium citrate. And again, you just keep sneaking up on it and then all of a sudden you'll see it. It'll go from barely detectably grainy to beautifully, beautifully smooth. Honestly, the flavor of this sauce is, to my taste, even even that I even now that I have it to where I still want to tweak a couple things, it is still dramatically it's the, the most the most noticeable thing is just intensely cheesier. You know, the texture is definitely a little bit a little bit different. It's a little stickier texture than the custard sauce. It doesn't have that really super silky characteristic that the custard sauce does, but it makes up for that with the really intense flavor. Like it is you you taste this and it tastes like cheese. There is no mistaking it. And it's not a subtle cheese flavor either, you know? And in fact, I happen to have a little chunk of Parmesan and I think a little bit of that would be really nice in here too. You know, even though you're using what is a, you know, pretty modern ingredient and something that isn't, doesn't have long history, this is actually the easiest of the three sauces to make. Um, there's really almost nothing you can do to, to screw it up. And again, like I say, even though I made it a little thinner than I wanted to, all I have to do to fix that is add some more cheese and add some more sodium citrate. And I'm, I'm good to go. Yeah. So now I'm looking at it and I can see now it's, it's definitely stiffer than it was before, but I can also tell that I need to add some more sodium citrate because it's starting to look a little lumpy and a little grainy, which is easily fixable. You know, the only, the only technique involved here is in adding a little more sodium citrate if you need it. You don't have to worry about curdling eggs like you do with the custard sauce. You don't have to work about, worry about not fully incorporating your roux like you do with the bechamel. It's basically impossible to break this. You know, if you left it on the burner and boiled it really hard, you might have some issues. Oh, that is beautiful. It is so, so smooth now. My pasta is almost done. In fact, my pasta is done. And now I'm just going to take my spider and pull the pasta out of the water, not even drain it so I get some of that starchy pasta water coming along with it. And I'm adding it directly to a fairly small amount of my cheese sauce that I made. And we'll do just standard pasta marrying. Heating up the liquid to a boil, just so the whole thing thickens a little. And the pasta and the sauce marry. The cheese just gradually, gradually thickens and really begins to stick to the pasta. It's so intensely like cheese smelling right now. You know, there is no mistaking this for anything else. And again, this is three quarters goat cheese. Um, and it's a, it's a, just a beautiful, beautiful sauce. You know, like I say, if you've ever tried to melt goat cheese on its own, it doesn't melt very well. But in this situation, it does. It smells like cheese in a way that the other two just do not. You know, and it's funny. It's funny the other, uh, yesterday when I made the, when I made the first two, the, the bechamel and the custard versions, I brought them to, to my wife. I had them on a, on a plate and they were separated. You know, and I said, oh, this is the bechamel and this is the custard. She said, okay, great. <laughs> you know, she's eating them. And then I wandered off and then I texted her a little bit later. And uh, I was like, you know, obviously the, uh, 
the the custard one was way better. And she immediately texted back and she said, no, 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 what are you talking about? She's like, the bechamel one was obviously way better. So of the three styles of mac and cheese, you know, they have their technical aspects to each of them. But ultimately, like with all food, some people are just going to like one a lot more than, than the others. <laughs> and so the, the question really becomes, you know, you got a twofold thing going on. You have what do, what do the people that I'm serving for, what do they want? And what do I want? What do I want to make? And then also, can I make what I want to make as well as I can, as good as I can possibly make it? So you've got these three sort of competing interests. You have the technical ability to do the thing, and then you have what you want to eat, and then you have what the people that you're cooking for want to eat. There's no one best way to make macaroni and cheese, but these are the three most common. I highly encourage you to try, try this. It's a little different than what you're used to, but it works really well. And I am hungry, so <laughs> I need to go eat something real quick. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet, Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Kotor Ebane. This is the third episode of the spring 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.